0: Hey everyone, welcome to Dev Educate. I'm your host, Kamran Ayub, and today I'm joined by Joe Eames. Joe, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Karen. Glad to be on. Awesome. So, for folks who are hearing you for the first time, do you mind sharing a little bit about who you are and what you do?
1: Yeah, no problem. So, I'm a longtime developer. I started developing in the programming professionally in the mid 90s. And lately, last 15-ish years, I've been pretty specialized on the front end, although I've done lots of backend and full stack development. And I've done a lot of courses for Pluralsight, authored quite a few things and have been one of their top performing authors for most of that time period. And I do a variety of things, but Pluralsight and doing courses is kind of the, the main thing that I do.
0: Awesome, and I actually have taken your courses before. I remember I came into a new job and they were doing Angular 1. And <laughs> I was like, well, I've been doing React, so I do not have any idea how to do Angular. And luckily mm-hmm. your, your courses were there to help me through it. <laughs> awesome. But I brought you onto the show today because I attended one of your sessions at the latest Pluralsight conference, and it was about making it stick for yeah. for developers and uh, and by making it stick we're talking about learning and education do you mind giving us a little bit of an overview of your thoughts on on making it stick and and what you've what some of the what are some of the ways that we fail to make it stick
1: <laughs> yeah so i think it's good to kind of like start off with what make it make it stick is so make it sticks a a, a book and it's one of those books you might find at a at the at the bookstore over at the airport, right? Mm-hmm. One of these books that are kind of written for lay people. It's about a very uh, obviously a very technical subject, but it's written for for lay people. I myself have been very interested in the science of education for quite a while now, and I've spent, I would say a, a lot of my time trying to learn better about the science of education and how people learn and how they get educated. really affected how I wanted to do my courses both at Pluralsight and I did spend some other time doing courses outside of Pluralsight at a place called Thinkster but I was really interested in trying to be more effective at teaching because there's just a very interesting thing that goes on when you look at the content that's built for developers who are already past their basically their college education once you get outside of College education, there just really isn't good quality education. So make it stick is one of these books that kind of collects up all together in a in a very digestible format and very easy, easy to read. It's very pleasant. Great book to read or listen to if you're looking for something like this, because it's filled with a lot of stories, interesting stories and studies that are kind of fascinating. But it's about the current state of science as far as how do we learn most effectively. as as people. And for programmers, not necessarily 100% of it applies because some of it has a, a bit to do with more mechanical tasks. But by and large, the book is useful for any programmer to kind of understand how they learn. And I think that that's great for somebody to read this book to understand because ultimately, you are the most responsible person for your own education. Sure, you can expect that you're employer spends money to train you but learning is not only your responsibility you won't have to be the one that actually does the learning right but as a career and as a programmer learning more effectively is a huge deal it can keep you paid better than you would be and it also can free up your time because the less time you actually have to spend learning so the more effective your learning is the more free time that you have mm mm-hmm. So it, it's really, really important to be capable of learning new things when, while being a, a developer.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I like to say I'm a lifelong learner. Yeah, uh, and I actually did pick up the book and I read the first chapter in order to be a little bit more informed. And I think, I think what's interesting is the book is takes its own advice, so it it does a lot of repetition and things mm-hmm. like that. And they inter- they sort of introduce all the ideas in the first chapter. And one of those is that learning is misunderstood and they yeah. go through a few different myths or like learning myths. Do you want to talk a little bit about what your takeaways there were?
1: Yeah, I think this is one of the really important things to understand is that generally we as people, the sort of things that we kind of pick up through our time in school and what we hear and read, a lot of the things that we think have to do with what is effective learning are actually wrong. And that kind of comes down to a lot of things about learning are actually counterintuitive. You would think it would be one way, but it's actually the other. And -hmm. some of it is our own own nature. I think a really good place to start off with is just the fact that most people are looking for the types of learning that are easy to do and Effective learning is actually, should feel effortful and should feel hard. And so my analogy is basically if you go to the gym and after your session at the gym, you walk out and you're relaxed and you're not tired at all, that's a really good indication you did not do anything useful at the gym, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Outside of weird situations where maybe you're recovering from an injury, but if you leave the gym and you're not tired, you probably did not have a good gym session at all. And learning is the same way. Learning should feel effortful and it actually should feel difficult. And if it, if it doesn't feel difficult and effortful, it probably wasn't effective learning. Yeah. So that's one of the things that I think is the most interesting about being counterintuitive is that you need to actually seek out what is difficult, but there's a, a, this one is, I think another aspect of uh, what is counterintuitive about learning that I think is really common is What's called the illusion of massed practice. So, massed practice is the concept of I'm going to do one thing and I'll do it over and over and over again until I master it. Right. And this is pretty common. When we think of it in the term in terms of like physical skills, batting, you know, in baseball or, or throwing a ball or something like that. But life doesn't involve us doing the same exact thing over and over and over again for the most part. And certainly, programming doesn't.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: so doing one thing and getting really 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 good at that one exact thing <clears throat> you know and i'm talking about a very specific tiny little task is oftentimes a very ineffective way to learn because the gains that you make while doing that usually leave really quickly mm-hmm. and so more effective learning is to actually vary the things that you learn and when it comes to like programming you know, th- this is easy to apply in sort of the physical world like if I like to golf, for example, so if I go and I hit the same exact club at the same exact target exactly for a hundred balls, it's probably a lot less valuable to me in learning than if I vary which club I'm hitting or vary the target that I'm hitting at or the strength that I'm trying to hit the, the club at. So that's a good example of a physical task. When it comes to programming, it's a little bit harder to uh, to implement. But I would say things like trying to program the same exact thing, like doing a for learning a for loop by doing the same exact for loop over and over again, typing it in twenty times, I think that's pretty obvious to us all. That that's not necessarily a great way to learn doing some particular technique. And fortunately, with programming, it kind of throws us into a lot of varied situations. But uh, my own personal preference there is that if you need to find varieties of situations to apply the principles that you've learned or the new techniques that you've learned. So obviously personal projects are a great way to do that, but if you're learning something, you need to find a variety of situations mm-hmm. to apply that Apply that in. So that's just one example of how learning is pretty counterintuitive or, or a couple of examples.
0: Yeah. So what you're saying is that when I watch YouTube to learn how to do home improvement, I'm not actually getting better at doing home improvement. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> Even yeah. Though it well, feels great. <laughs> this really comes back to what I think is my biggest, what was the biggest shock to me. And I, obviously it, it really wasn't a huge shock because I, I sort of saw this over time, but as I was doing plural site courses, I started doing plural courses, you know, online and creating courses back in 2012. And I did a lot of them for a long time. And then I started studying learning and I finally realized that most of what we go through is actually really ineffective for that exact reason. Watching videos on home improvement is not actually learning how to do home improvement. So there are two things that go on with programmers learning that is really bad. One is we watch other people do something and we think that that somehow teaches us something and it really doesn't, it's the most ineffective way to learn anything is to just watch somebody else do something. So all those YouTube videos and courses that you pay for, pay a lot of money on, and and you sit down and you just watch somebody else doing some programming, Twitch streaming that got really popular for a while. Maybe it is still popular. I don't know. I don't watch other people program on live on Twitch. I do buy courses, but I don't watch them. I've never gotten into the live coding twitch uh, phase but that is the least possible effective thing you could likely do in learning to program maybe reading a book uh what might be but it's actually probably not but just watching somebody do something is super super ineffective because all you're doing is watching you're not actually doing anything there's no practice Mm -hmm. there's no there's no true learning. You're, you're going to be lucky if you're going to remember a few percent of what you watch. So think of it this way. If you watch for an hour, the effective learning was probably three minutes of that hour. And the other 57 minutes of that hour was wait, absolutely wasted time where you forgot literally everything that you saw. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the two big things about um, watching online courses. And then, in my opinion, the the big lie of youtube videos and online courses is the code with me or code along Mm -hmm. direction Mm -hmm. right so this is the other one that is a huge 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 problem very ineffective as far as learning goes and one of my own personal beefs which is i'm i'm going to teach you how to you know do something new in 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 java right so we're going to go through this thing and i've got some sample code, you can download it and install it. And then it starts where I start and you can code along and do the same exact coding. That is so bad. It is super, it's counterintuitive. You think that you are actually doing something, but think about this. Programming is not typing. Typing ultimately lets you express the programming, but the actual programming that happens, happens inside of your mind as you figure out and decide what constructs, what code to actually craft and create. And whether you're doing typing coding with a typing language, you're doing drag and drop with something like scratch, these sorts of things, the actual coding happens in the actual programming happens in your head. Mm -hmm. And the typing is just an expression of it. I mean, you could do voice to text and and code, right? The actual physical act of typing. So if you're typing along with somebody who's coding, you are making zero decisions yourself as to what code to write. You are simply mimicking and parroting the code that they write. And so what you're actually getting is typing practice and not coding practice if you code along with somebody while they code. Now, that doesn't mean that there might not be some value in coding along because if they're doing something and you code up part of that, and then maybe you use that to play around and try new things, or you need your, you want, the, the sample project, you need it to be at the end point of this because you're trying to learn something new and you're going to go off on your own mm-hmm. and learn something. Then it, just keeping it up to date, it would be much easier if you could just copy and paste all that in. Yep. But the actual coding along activity is super useless. And if you are doing this ever, stop it unless there's some other reason like, hey, I need to keep this. They don't give me checkpoints to so that I can play on my own or do you know, my own exercises, but you are not doing any coding when you are coding along with somebody, you are simply you're in fact, it's even worse than just getting zero value, you're actually getting a negative value, because you're busy typing, and you've got to watch what they type and type it in. And maybe you're pausing the video and rewinding and that sort of thing and typing. That is an actual task. And that task takes some brain overhead. So you're actually reducing the amount of brain power you have to focus and learn on what they're saying because you're so busy typing.
0: Yeah, exactly. And besides that, I mean, if you think about how often is it that a learner can get in the exact same state as the person presenting, yeah. and so they they might run into like, oh, I just typed this in and it doesn't work. And now I'm like stuck because I don't mm-hmm. understand. I don't understand like the principles at play here.
1: Yeah. So as much as I actually love Pluralsight, I think they're one of the best platforms that are out there. They're just, they still haven't gotten their hands-on system in place. They're they're working on it. And I believe in the next six-ish months, we should see that Pluralsight has hands-on things in place. But I've built many times this code along with me stuff. In fact, Pluralsight requires it for the most part. And so I've had tons of people that have sent in these problems and say, hey, this isn't working. And 99% of the time, the answer is, go backwards, watch the video over again, retype and make sure you just didn't miss anything. And that's what's going on is they're just typing the wrong thing in. And it's just such a poor use of their time Mm -hmm. to just figure out why did I not type in the right straight same character? And you could see the fact that if they're getting stuck because they missed a character or two, they absolutely don't understand at all what's being taught.
0: Yep, exactly. And this is a good segue into from an instructor point of view. So for those of us who are actively creating developer content and creating developer education, what can we do better? That's not just record a video and follow me along.
1: Yeah, so for educators, the obvious thing is provide ways for people to actually practice. Now, um, I, being a full-time course author, I do know and understand that depending on the platform that you're creating your stuff in, that can be a lot more time intensive than actually putting together the content and the videos. And so sometimes that can be a problem and it can be easy if you, if you get it wrong at all, depending on again, what you're doing, then it could be really time intensive to help people out or people can cause a lot of frustration. So you could take a really wide view of this, these sorts of things. One is you just put it completely all on the learner, but at least as an educator, first off, understand that people typing along with you is not useful. So stop offering that as Mm -hmm. uh, part of what your, your education is this, Hey, type along with me, stop doing that. The easiest, the very first easiest thing that you could do is simply tell people, Hey, After you learn this, go and practice it somehow, right? Create your own little personal project or something, but you need to practice this and just tell people. You could take a little small step forward from there and just come up with some ideas. Say, hey, you could practice this. So here's an idea, write yourself an application that does this or or do a piece, or or I've got my finished code, copy it and make and change it to do this. Or I've got my starting code, copy it, but but do something different. So at least come up with some ideas. And you could take that, you can continue to take that step forward farther forward. Now it's not just an idea, it might be here's a starting point for a, an actual homework project. I'm not going to give you the ending point. And that's one nice thing about programming is a lot of times you know if you got it right or wrong because it works or it doesn't work. So right. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's really great. But if you really want to take, in my opinion, the best all the way thing that you can possibly do for learners. Um, you can head over to thinkster.com and check out my Fundamentals of Angular course. And inside of there, I actually do tons of cr- – I create tons of hands-on exercises. And then I do something that you really don't see out there very much, which is actually walk people through their own project once they've learned. Actually walk them through practicing. And I, I actually said I, – I really said that wrong. I say once they've learned. Once they've seen the content. But learning mm-hmm. isn't just seeing. Mm -hmm. You know, you put it into this sort of like temporary state, Hey, I, you know, some things, right. You kind of understand it, but until you've practiced it and put it into, into practice, you actually haven't learned it. Yeah.
0: And in the book, they, they gave a really good metaphor, which is, it's like just bringing building materials to your construction site, but not actually building the house. Like you've acquired the knowledge, but you also have to apply it.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's a great, that's a great example of that. Good analogy there. So as educators, the more that you can do to get people to do hands-on, and you can even just tell them how useless it is to just watch this video and that they need to be actually putting this into practice themselves. Just yeah. that, giving them that sort of responsibility, the learners is definitely something.
0: Exactly. And one thing that I did, what, what's funny is in the very first course I ever did for Pluralsight, I think what in the introductory video, I said, You're not going to get a good learning experience unless you get hands-on. We learn by doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at that time, Pluralsight didn't have an option to add hands-on experiences. And now they do. So I'm actually developing those for my latest course. But one thing I did in the last course I did was sort of an in-between, just like you were saying. What I did was I had a partial solution and then I had a stretch challenge. So basically at the end of the video, it would say, here's what we just learned. Now here's a challenge where you have to put it into practice in a, di- in a slightly different way. And I don't provide the answer in the course. They would have to actually go and look it up. So I, I feel like for, for folks who are restricted to video only, like that's, that's one option you can do, but it gets, it's even better if you can somehow integrate hands-on mm-hmm. labs and or even like a small assessment or, or something like that. I know that is one thing they talked about in the first chapter is that testing gets a bad rap, but if it is a practical test, then it can, it's actually very helpful. And studies have shown that it helps increase the amount of retention.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know. So like a quick tip there is if you actually are, if you're doing anything with people around front end stuff, JavaScript stuff, Mm Stack Blitz is just an amazing place to go and create a simple little, hey, take this URL and you can do something, a little simple homework project for people.
0: Yeah, and Stack Blitz is one. The other one I just came across is Gitpod, and they have a free plan. You can basically point it to a repository or a branch in GitHub, and then it spins up a code execution environment. So it's a little bit like GitHub Code Spaces. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, but separate. And I've seen a few different products inside of their learning materials at the end of the tutorial, they'll say like, Hey, you can get hands on with this lab. You just click the link and it's got all the code that was inside the
1: tutorial. Now you can play with it and hack on it, which is pretty cool. Yeah. There's some great tools out there that don't take too much, you know, effort to really help out with this. So, and it's a lot easier in the front end space than in some of the other spaces, at least stack blitz will let you do node as well. But once you start getting into some of the other languages, Java, .NET, and stuff, it's a little bit more difficult to get some of these things together, but we're seeing more and more of these now, you know, with the uh, GitHub's VMs that they're doing and <clears throat> things like that. We're seeing, we're seeing more of this and Pluralsight's new hands-on solutions supports, you know, most languages that'll run on Linux boxes as well. So
0: Mm-hmm. Well, so another learning myth that sort of came up, which is one that I feel like I had before reading and, and understanding this a little bit more, was the learning styles. Like, I feel like, oh, I'm a visual learner um, versus like like reading text or listening to audio, but the book sort of blows that apart.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that was another interesting thing. They talked about how common the misconception, like 90% of all adults think that. so here's here's essentially the theory of learning styles is that people have preferred learning styles. and whether that's just a true personal preference or how maybe our particular brains are wired or maybe how we grew up and, and learned to learn, we have a learning preference. and that it's best for us as a learner if while learning something new, that topic is presented given our preferred learning style. So audio, audible would be one, reading, visual where you see things, tactile where you do more hands hands-on and there there's there's a couple and there there's a variety of them a lot of different people that try to quantify the different learning styles have come up with a fairly large variety and and sort of dice them up in different ways, but the book really talks about that 90% of adults believe that this is true, that you learn better when you learn using your preferred learning style. And as—and here's the crazy part is that 70% of educators believe that that's true. Like <laughs> I'm talking, you know, public school teachers and things, but the reality is, is that you don't actually learn better using your preferred learning style. What the most important thing is to get the learning in the most effective learning style based on what you are being taught. Mm. So for example, geometry should be taught visually, Right. Mm-hmm. poetry should be taught auditorily or in music variety but it's also good to throw in a variety of learning methods some visual some non-visual some tactile that sorts of thing if you if it applies to the, what's being taught because the variety of things is also very helpful but your preferred learning style is actually completely irrelevant as to how effectively you'll learn something
0: yeah and it it follows then that for programming and software development, one of the more, probably the most effective is going to get to write code, like yeah. actually yeah. put it into practice.
1: <laughs> yeah. And we see this because how many, po- there's a gazillion podcasts about programming, but how many of them actually try to walk through code just auditorily? None, right? It's None, just, yeah. it's not effective, mm-hmm. but I, this actually, the learning styles goes back to that originally first point, Right we look at learning styles. So if you have a preferred learning style, you enjoy getting that learning through that learning style. That means it's more pleasant and therefore easier on you. Mm -hmm. And that original point was when learning feels easy, it's ineffective. When it feels hard, it's effective, right? So when we search out the ways that feel easier, you know, what's really easy is to sit down and watch a YouTube video and not think too hard about it and not try to not spend time trying to code along and install that stupid thing that you you want to learn and get a a project up and running so that you can and figure out your own idea for how to apply it all that's hard what's really easy is just sit and watch it and at the end of that 20 minute video feel like you learned something that's easy Mm -hmm. actually doing it hands-on especially when they don't provide you quick little links to some vm somewhere that you can and assign you homework when they don't do all that work and you have to do all that extra work. That's hard. But
0: but, but Joe, what, what if I, what if I take my notes and I reread them over and over again? <laughs> yeah, that's, pre- that's pretty effective.
1: Isn't, isn't that right? Yeah. So yet one more uh, misconception about learning is that rereading notes. So this one's called the misconception of familiarity. So being familiar with a topic, isn't the same thing as gaining mastery in it. So one of the things might be if you start getting familiar with the different parts of an API, I'm trying, you know, applying some of these things to programming is, is a little bit challenging sometimes, but getting familiar maybe with different APIs, or at least the names of the methods might make you feel like you're learning something. But until you can actually know which API call to make in which situations to solve which problems then you really haven't given yourself much in the way of mastery the f- knowing that an api method is there is one thing but actually knowing which method to call when that's what actually learning an api involves and the same thing with you know any language knowing that there is a language element is one thing knowing when to use it is an entirely different thing mhm yep exactly
0: and i feel like i draw I draw similarities to like me learning how to work on my house. Cause like I said, I did, I did watch tons of YouTube videos from a professional contractor. I felt like that, that was the acquiring knowledge part because you don't know what you don't know. Right. So I had no idea what the jargon was, what, you know, what, how do you do drywall? What's a hawk, what's a mud pan, et cetera, et cetera. But then once the hawk and the mud pan is in my, is in my actual hands that I'm trying to do the drywall, and learning like, oh crap, this is really hard. I go back and go, go back to the video and just rewatch it and look at his movements like super closely. And it's almost like I'm rewatching it, but in a different mindset where I'm like really examining how he's doing it so that I can try to get, try to get better. But that first time going through, it's just totally passive. And it's more of like, I'm just understanding what the motions are, but I'm not actually going through the motions.
1: Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another good analogy.
0: So, one thing I wanted to ask was how to actually measure our learning effectiveness if we're creating education.
1: Well, well that's pretty challenging. A lot of the ways that we as development teachers, right, teach other developers is a pretty disconnected method. If you maybe you're just throwing out YouTube videos, right? You don't get much interactivity with the students. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you're on some kind of a platform, you're actually like teaching on Udemy or Pluralsight or something like that, you might get more interaction. But a lot of times measuring how effective your learning is can be close to impossible unless you're really teaching it in a classroom setting or a cohort type setting. That could be really difficult to actually just measure how effective your learning is. So outside of getting a couple of people to do it and give you tons of feedback, this is a Unfortunately, it's a little bit like many things that we deal with in life. We only hear the complete edge cases, the people who loved it, and they may love it and have nothing to do with how effective the learning was. In fact, again, going to the counterintuitive nature, if you provide a course that gives the illusion of teaching, but makes them feel good and easy, you might Mm -hmm. get a lot of really good reviews on your Mm -hmm. course. Mm -hmm. But if you make it hard, you might not get very many good reviews because people got in there like, oh, this is so hard. And these other courses that I've seen or these YouTube videos are so much easier to follow along with. Or you get the people that complain, right? You're, you're going to get the ones that maybe they weren't ready or maybe they found the mistakes that you, they were the few people that actually tried to do the hands-on stuff that you made and they found the mistakes and they complain about it. <clears throat> so measuring the quality of your learning is not, I mean, easy. I don't have any real like, straightforward methods, it's nice to at least ask a friend or something to go through or find some kind of a, essentially a beta tester to go through the course and then have them give you some real true feedback as far as like, okay, I got to this point and I felt a little confused, but again, can you even modify what you've produced? Once you produce produced, you know, a YouTube video, they don't have the edit, an edit button on YouTube. So outside of releasing another video, yep. you don't have much option there. And a lot of times if you put together an entire course, by the time somebody can go through it, if they find a problem in the middle, making a major edit to that course might take so much time that you may never get to it. So yeah, those exactly. things are really difficult. And I don't, I don't, I certainly don't have any good, really great answers, but certainly popularity is <clears throat> no measurement of the quality of your education. So for me personally, I just try as hard as possible to look at what I'm doing and try to make it as great as I possibly can and effective as I possibly can and don't take too much stock into complaints and, and positive reviews.
0: Yeah. The, I like to say that views are the vanity metric, right? Mm -hmm. It's just like, just like number of followers on social channels. Like what matters is that engagement and for, for learning material. Yeah. It's, it's tough for, for YouTube. You don't have too much control. I think you can sort of see where the drop-offs are or like where people are spending their time in the video, sort of like a heat map almost. Yep. But one thing I was thinking of was these experiences that people are building for open source tools a little bit more. I've been noticing these learning experience platforms almost where I'm thinking of Storybook and Cypress and the new React docs actually have some more things built in that I think could help with measurement. but. I don't, I I haven't talked with those teams yet to know, like, are they actually getting measurements? But for example, in the new React docs, they're adding challenges to the ends of some of the guides. And then they, they, they don't reveal the answer until you like click a button to like review the answer. So I could imagine that if you can track that someone starts a challenge and then they complete the challenge, and then they also take a look at the solution, that could be one way to measure like the effectiveness of the material. yeah. But, but those require total control, almost the entire learning experience right. has to be under control, right?
1: Yeah. And I personally take very little stock in the idea of how many people completed something and got it right. Mm-hmm. You know, and some of these, they actually test whether you got the thing, or they give you a challenge and they test whether you got it right or not. As an educator, that actually, again, just like views and clicks or likes, whatever can actually not necessarily be a useful metric because somebody might try it, get it wrong and still have learned a ton, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, or a lot of people may not ever try it, but they might try, they might still go off and do it in a personal project or a work project that they're working in. So you, what you create might be super effective, but this, the usage of your hands-on may not necessarily correlate. And whether or not they got it right, maybe they tried it. Maybe you what you produced was actually really poor, and it took them 20 tries, but eventually they got it right. Mm-hmm. Or they had to go in the middle of doing it, they got lost. But before they got a right or a wrong answer, and they went off and looked at other materials, figured it out, and then put in the right answer. You know, So that doesn't necessarily always make a good measurement for did you – create good effective learning obviously the more engagement you have with the hands-on stuff the better because then at least people are doing the hands-on things but uh, it's not always an amazing you know a perfect metric and programming is again 99 of the time if as long as you put them in a place where what they're doing is you know either compiling or getting a result like you can tell if they got it right or wrong because it either works or it doesn't work very few things in programming work for the wrong reason without rare exceptions. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so there's actually not, I don't think feel a ton of pressure to create hands-on materials that actually tell the person whether they got it right or wrong. So long as I know that what they're doing, it should be obvious to them that it's right or wrong either because it does compile because the thing shows up, the button now appears at the right point. You know, it's got the right colors. So they know that they've, they've done it right or wrong. Yeah. It,
0: it, uh, you know what it almost feels like I've sort of been throwing this thought around drawing like a drawing a correlation between like what video game companies do because if you think about any sufficiently complex video game where there's like a tutorial, that's a learning experience. But the the designers and the programmers, they might come up with an in- initial learning experience, but then they have an army of like QA testing. And, and people actually going through it hundreds of hours at a time in order to refine that experience so that it works for a larger audience. But it feels like when we create courses or we create product documentation or we create open source onboarding and, and things like that, we just put it out there and then we either don't revisit it or we just wait and see until someone you know reports an issue. Whereas we might want to be taking almost like a... An iterative design approach, where we do user testing or like we do QA testing. Yeah, nice. Well, why should if if I'm in a position like at a tech company and I have these SDKs, why should I care about effective learning? What's what what's in it for me? If I want to spend time thinking about effective learning, why not just have some of my developer advocates create videos and pump them out?
1: Yeah. So I think that this is actually a really good thing for a company that has a product and they have enough resources that this falls within the realm of something they can do. Think about this. Let's say that you are, I'm going to pick a a recent example. Let's say that you are Auth0 before Okta acquired Auth0. Mm -hmm. So you're doing, they do a authentication API Mm -hmm. to make it easier to add authentication to your web, to your application. And you have this competitor, Okta, who also does authentication. If somebody goes out and looks at the web, you know, the first thing they're going to do in evaluating which solution they want is they're going to look at the website, but then they're going to potentially start digging in. So maybe they choose you, maybe they choose Okta, but if they choose you initially and they start digging in, the quicker they get to where they are feeling comfortable with what you've built and are effective at it and can implement it, the more likely they are going to turn into a paying customer or stay a paying customer and not convert over to something else. But if they get in there and it takes a long time, and there's a lot of reasons why it could take a long time. You might have not designed the product particularly well, or the APIs, or could be different, or you're just solving a really complex problem. It could take time, but compared to your competitors, if you are faster and easier to learn, you are almost for sure, more likely going to have a significant lead in an edge in gaining and retaining customers. So imagine a world where somebody could snap their fingers and know your product intimately, and you are a little bit more expensive than a competitor, but the competitor takes a thousand hours of learning. Mm -hmm. Well, the competitor is now much more expensive than you are.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I know I keep going back to construction industry metaphors, but it's sort of what I'm familiar with, but mm-hmm. I'm thinking of if I am going to waterproof a bathroom, I know exactly what I would use and that would be Schluter systems. And I've watched their videos where they they take people on site and they certify them. So they take builders and contractors and they bring them on site and they have them actually practice waterproofing, you know, in assembly and that's how they that's how they teach them. And that's like that's customer success, right? And then so no wonder when I think of waterproofing a bathroom, the only brand that comes to mind is Schl- Schl- Schluter. But it's similar for like open source open source products, like getting developers in the door, moving them from the evaluation step to the build the build step, and removing that friction is huge.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure.
0: So one bonus question that I had was. I thought this would be great to go over your angular fundamentals course Mm -hmm. it's 13 hours long with 191 Mm -hmm. lessons i feel like this is so much longer than i've seen from other course providers and i think it speaks to like what making it stick is all about but do you have any sort of statistics or things from that on how successful like that
1: has been well, it's, it's been consistently one of Plural Site's like top 20 courses that watched. Now, the longer a course is, of course, then that also indicates more time. They, they track it by time. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a little bit of it. I don't know. They don't break down for us. A lot of the statistics, I, I can tell you that over the course of the time that I've been authoring at Pluralsight, over 3 million people have watched some, some portion of some course of mine. So that's kind of an interesting statistic. Mm-hmm. That that long course, that big course, it's certainly a big one. And a lot of it is we we actually put a lot of hands-on uh exercises back just links to Stack Blitz and another online places where you could do some hands-on exercises. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But we just we took our time with that course. So we don't have you know, plural site doesn't yet have, hasn't yet implemented its hands-on stuff. So we don't have any data about things like that, but I think there's a, and they I haven't seen statistics about how many people have taken that actual course, but it's a long one. It's a big one. So I am, I, I imagine that there's been, you know, close to a million people that have taken that course.
0: Yeah. Well, and I saw, I think on Thinkster, you have a neat little video uh, that explains like why take, why take this long course. And I think you were saying, and maybe it comes straight from the book that when you put into practice, you are retaining five five to 10 times more than just at, just watching passively. Is that right? Yeah.
1: yeah. And to kind of clarify things, I've got Fundamentals of Angular courses over on Pluralsight and on Thinkster. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Thinkster one is starting to age a little bit and Pluralsight, well, there'll be a new updated version for 16 here coming out in a few mo- months when 16 itself releases. So just in case anybody's... Listening is getting confused, but yeah, yeah. I talk a bunch at the very beginning of that course over it. I Things so, I had a lot more fr- flexibility and freedom as to what to talk about and when, but I put a lot of time and energy into trying to persuade people that when you en- embark on learning something big, like Angular, you need to be committed to the process and you have to take some responsibility on your own to say, I am going to do the hands-on exercises. And so I've spent time trying to educate people about education to convince them that, you know, don't do this if you aren't committed to the process because you're just going to waste your time and 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 back out of it. As a good analogy, I tried to learn the view framework about two years ago and I spent, I don't know, 10 hours watching some courses and then I stopped. And so I really wasted all that time uh, that I spent. So you got to be committed to a process if you don't want to waste your time. And that means not just going through the material, but also doing it hands-on. When it comes to programming, programming is all—all all the learning is by you actually practicing the programming.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a—it's a, it's an important point because even if we do the best that we can creating our developer content and education, it's leading a horse to water. But the learner has to, you know, actually take it on themselves to participate. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. Well, Joe, it's time for drop an apple. This is your chance oh to drop some knowledge on the audience. Are you ready? <laughs> okay, yeah. So what's one thing you wish someone had told you early on about creating content and education for developers?
1: Ooh, uh, You know, I got this. I did get this information, a li- you know, after not too long, but that was basically to not expect that you are going to be, not, not compare yourself too much to anybody else, right? It's okay to be yourself, have your own style, have your own system. Some of the people that I would think wouldn't necessarily be great educators for a variety of strange reasons. Maybe their, their voice is unusual or something like that. Or course teachers actually are fantastic ones. And so don't look at yourself and think, I can't do that because I'm not like X and whoever X is, is whoever you admire, be your own educator. So mm-hmm. I'd say that would be the one thing that I wish that I had learned right from the beginning. That would have been helpful to me.
0: Perfect. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Where can people go to find out more to learn about you and what you've been up to recently?
1: Like find me on Twitter at, at Joseph Eames, J-O-S-E-P-H-E-A-M-E-S. And um, I'm not as crazy active on that because I also am not a huge fan of social media as a whole and uh, its distraction to us in our lives. So I'm kind of active on there, but my DMs are open if people have questions. I do get around to responding to them usually within a week, so they can follow me there. And mostly, I'm pretty active in being on Plural sites. So if you want to follow current work that I'm doing, you would actually head over to, to Plural Site.
0: Excellent. Yeah, and I'll include all that in the in the show notes. Well, sweet. This was really fun, Joe. Thanks for spending time with me here today. Really
1: appreciate it. Yeah, you bet.
0: I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Joe. Here are the things I thought were worth pointing out when it comes to developer marketing and education. Effective learning is effortful. It should feel hard, not easy. Passively watching home reno YouTube didn't renovate my basement. Me actually doing it did and I had to rewatch videos many times and still made mistakes or forgot things. Practice makes perfect? Not exactly, practice by doing. We retain five to 10 times more information when we get hands-on. Don't just create follow along content, but instead ask questions, encourage learners to solve problems before you show them, vary the scenarios you walk through, and interleave hands-on exercises to increase retention. If your content medium restricts your control over the learning experience, like YouTube, one way to try and create effective learning is just by telling the learner directly to get their hands on the demo code. The most effective learning happens in the medium that best facilitates application of knowledge. If you're explaining something conceptual in an article, include a diagram or even a quick video that visually explores it in addition to the written explanation. If you're releasing a coding video, include an article or lab side-by-side so that people can get hands-on right away with what you're teaching. If you want someone to learn your open source CLI, teaching them the commands when they first run it will probably teach them the best. We tend not to like tests, but quick, short quizzing on what someone just learned helps increase retention. Pop quiz, what documentation just added challenges? React. I provided a link in the show notes to the new React Docs that challenges learners with interactive sandboxes to solve problems related to the concept. As Joe said, if you are faster and easier to learn than a competitor, it's much more likely to improve developer-qualified leads. I couldn't agree more! Even though it's hard to measure, thinking about how to design content that teaches people more effectively gives you an edge against companies who don't spend the time thinking about designing good content because it reduces friction between the steps in the developer journey. You could try taking a page from the gaming industry who have to teach gamers complex mechanics and systems. Game studios bring in tons of people to help QA, we don't have to go to that level necessarily, but try piloting your course or your new how-to guide with a small group of people first who can give you actionable feedback before you bring it to the masses. FYI, I've included links in the show notes so you can dive deeper into the book, Make It Stick, and Joe's courses. That's it for this week. I'm Kamran Nayub and I hope you'll join me again next time for Dev Educate. If you'd like to learn more about developer education and how it can help you grow your open source product or developer tool, just go to devedtestkitchen.com. Join other professional developer content chefs so we can all learn together how to cook up better gourmet content that educates and inspires developers. You can also reach out to me directly with questions or comments through my website or on Twitter at Comron I hope you have a lovely day.